Welcome to the Comics Course, a podcast offering by Miskatonic University's Remote Education Program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History. I am your Professor Hamby, accompanied by my TA, Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello, Rowan. If you have comments or questions, I'm on Twitter as Prof Hamby. That is P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. Let's get class started. Class is in session. Welcome back, folks. We are going to cover A Doll's House today, the second major story arc of the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. And Ro and I just finished sort of marathon watching uh, episodes 7 through 11 or 6 through 11 of the series. Something like that. Anyway, the last four of them, I think. Uh, we did not, however, watch the very final episode, which does not appear connected and has at least one story from D- Dream Country in it, which is a fan favorite, The Dream of a Thousand Cats. Mm, that's why they did it. Right. And it's just kind of a extra thing thrown in there. They have so the budget. We'll watch it separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did, however, leave at the very end a teaser for a potential another season where they do Season of Miss, which is the storyline where we find out what Lucifer does to get revenge on Morpheus. Which is maybe not what you would think it would be. Okay. It's actually a kind of brilliant bit. Okay. So, Dream Country. We start with Tail in the Sand. What is your reaction to this? We're in a desert? Because you're staring at it. And the whole story takes place, effectively, between these two characters uh, at an undisclosed time in this desert telling a story. And I'm surprised a little bit that you did not immediately say, that does not look like anything from the TV show. It doesn't. That's that's why I said desert? Okay. Uh, I didn't hear that with a questioning tone. I heard it as a statement. But yes, they left the story completely out of the TV show. Oh. So in this story, you find out something that God alluded to when he went through hell. Mm-hmm. These, this older man wearing a headdress and a younger man uh, walk into the desert. Sorry, the younger man is the one with the headdress. They're out in the middle of the desert and one of them, the older guy says, Okay, go find me a thing while I build the fire. We have to start the story before sundown, and we'll finish it at dawn. And then you will be a man. Because you cannot be a man in our tribe until you have heard this story. And it is everybody's goal in this tribe, as a man, to share this story with a son or a nephew or somebody and pass it on. And this is a story only told from man to man. And so, of course, the grandson says... Uh, what am I looking for? (laughs) And the grandfather says, you'll know it when you see it. Okay. So he literally just wanders off and starts looking under rocks and stuff. Like, I do it when I see it. Okay, well, I guess I better look around. And he comes back with a piece of blue glass in the shape of a heart. (gasps) Wait. Looks familiar, doesn't it? Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he says, what is this? And the grandfather says, you will find more like it out here if you kept searching. 
This is the remnants of the city. The city once stood here, and we do not take this from this place. And he says, we do not tell people this, but once this land was green and verdant, and the first of men, the first people, came here, came from here, and we are their descendants, and other men do not know this. And he tells the story of, a, of their queen, who was wise and ruled justly, and everyone loved her. Mm-hmm. But she had no husband. Okay. And none could find a husband worthy of her. And her name was Nada. <gasps> okay. Then one day from her tower, she looks down and sees a man who looks up at her. But then he's gone. And she goes to the king of birds and seeks him. And the king of birds sends out all the birds in the world. And they cannot find him. And the king of birds says... You must stop this search, for he is not of this world, which means he is something else. But in this days, gods walk the earth too, so this is neither God nor man. Mm. And it is ill-advised. Nothing good comes from something between those that are beyond even the gods, the endless, immortals. But through various machinations, she finally discovers him. But she did not truly understand what he was, and in hunting him... He, in turn, becomes obsessed with her. And when she finally rejects him, he destroys the city and curses her to hell, which is where he found her, of course, during Preludes and Nocturnes when Morpheus goes to hell to recover his helm. Because mm-hmm, right? he's an asshole. He is, but that heart is also a symbol of desire. Mm-hmm. This happened because desire messed with the situation. Ah, and remember in the TV show when uh, uh, Despair says to Desire it did not work out before? She's referring to this. So that was a reference for people who knew the comics. Right. And in the comics, indeed, Despair even explicitly mentions Nada. As one of the past attempts by desire and despair to mess with Morpheus. Mm. So the story is told and Nada refuses to stay with Morpheus. And it finishes. They throw the stone away and they walk back. I'm, I'm of course, skipping lots of detail because the goal here is not to recount everything, but to talk about the themes. And that's one of the reasons this opens with this because, of course our remaining plot line in A Doll's House is going to be about this relationship between mortals and dream and what happens when desire interferes. Mm -hmm. I do, however, want to point out one little bit here I love at the very, very end, Mm -hmm. which is we get a narrator overview as these two are walking out of the desert back to where their tribe now lives. And the narrator overview says... There is another version of the tale. That is the tale the women tell each other in their private language, that the men children are not taught, and that the old men are too wise to learn. And in that version of the tale, perhaps things happened differently. But then that is a woman's tale, and it is never told to men. Okay. 
And there is a little bit, uh, uh, I mean, obviously these are male characters here with the story, but I do love kind of the insinuation also that women probably aren't reading this because it was a comic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there is an irony here since, you know, at the time it was released, I was probably a reasonable expectation, even though a woman, Karen Berger, helped make all this happen and Jeanette Kahn. But, I mean, the audience was overwhelmingly men. There are far more female comic book fans now than there probably have ever been in history. Mm-hmm. Um which is wonderful, and Sandman helped draw them. Now, also keep in mind, these were not published with the idea of trade paperbacks. I mean, today, comics are written with the idea they're going to be collected in trade paperbacks. But here, there wasn't really an idea of a doll's house that this had to sit next to. These were just individual monthly issues being published. Mm -hmm. And so now we go into the doll's house. Now, this is a reference to... Ibsen's A Doll's House are now. I know you're an art major, but are you familiar with that work at all? Have you ever heard of it? Of what? A Doll's House by Frederick Ibsen. It sounds familiar. Well, uh, if you take some more lit classes, depending on what you take, you may definitely uh, do it. Mm-hmm. But A Doll's House was written in the early 20th century by Frederick Ibsen. It is still very relevant and still a very popular play today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, it is still one of the most commonly performed plays today. Mm. It's a play in three parts, and it is about a woman who is basically a woman in a male-dominated, you know, uh, European society. Okay. Shocking. I wonder I how that feels. Right. <laughs> I would know. I'm the victim in this office. Uh-huh. I yeah. am. I am. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got... Bloody hounds coming in and destroying minis and crap. Uh-huh. Anyway. So, I mean, if people think it's bad today, which it is. I mean, people are... We actively have entities like the Supreme Court trying to roll back the clock to the 13th fucking century. Uh-huh. So... <laughs> it's not fun. No. But, uh, uh, certainly... You know, 19-teens, 1920s were as bad, if not worse. Yeah, at least it's a little better. A little better. And so the reference of Doll's House is not just the literal house she lived in and that mm-hmm. she was treated as a doll, but the Doll's House is a metaphor mm-hmm. for a society that takes away power and objectifies. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and the term objectification gets used wrong a lot. Objectification is used by people a lot to mean diminishing or belittling or something like that. That is not what objectification means. Objectification means to treat like an object. Mm -hmm. And it's appropriate in the context of a doll's house because when you reduce a human being, like say a woman, to a role that can be metaphorically considered a doll, there is a good chance you are objectifying her. Uh, And it's a useful metaphor, a pretty thing to be seen and live in the house and is completely powerless because a doll is just moved by somebody with actual volition and will. Mm -hmm. And that was the role of the woman in the story, who is, of course, a metaphor for many other women. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as we go into the doll's house, the storyline for Sandman, you need to keep that metaphor in line. That, yes, there are physical houses involved in the stories, just like the protagonist of Ibsen's dollhouse was. But the greater metaphor is being powerless. 
having to fill a role like a doll and being manipulated and controlled by others. Mm-hmm. And that is the major theme of this. Now, this is a storyline that has made some people yell, oh, well, clearly Neil Gaiman is a feminist. And other people have said, no, clearly he's not, because X, Y, Z. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say up front, Neil Gaiman is a feminist, clearly from the storyline, or at least wrote a damn good imitation of one. Mm-hmm. And for, from other things he has said and written, I'm pretty confident he is. But one of the reasons that people have often decried him not a feminist because of this work is because he shows more people than women as victims. In other words, some people believe that to be a feminist, you have to exclusively only care about the rights and problems of women. Which, if you think that, you clearly don't know what being a feminist actually is. Well, you can be a feminist and feel that way. Mm-hmm. It's just that, I'm sorry, but if you are not concerned about the problems of men while you're a feminist, you're mm-hmm. a feminist and a misandrist. Mm-hmm. You are sexist in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Gaiman clearly paints these problems as problems of men and women mm-hmm. um, and other genders that we might not even define and, and creatures that aren't even human. Mm-hmm. He, he casts this as a very broad theme and doesn't give you know, and he doesn't attempt to give answers. <laughs> so we start out Doll's House, uh, as we did in the TV show, at the Citadel of Desire, inside this giant casting of Desire's body, <laughs> which she is literally living in a house of herself. She is a prisoner in her own existence, in a sense. <laughs> uh, and it's a pretty clear metaphor that becomes even more relevant by the end of it. And she sits there and does the whole shtick where she... And I keep saying she, but it's she, he, they. Keep in mind, when this was published, they didn't really have that dialogue about genders that we do now. But the intention was very obviously to be very uh, uh, androgynous. Not gender neutral, but simultaneously both. Does that make sense? Fluid. No. Fluid implies changing back and forth. Desire is both simultaneously. Mm, okay. Which is a different thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because desire is the desire of all things, including desire of men for women, women for men, men for men. She is, she is all desires. And I am going to use she as the pronoun here because they are referred to as a sister within Among the Endless. So that seems the appropriate, least confusing pronoun to use. Mm-hmm. And Desire summons Despair, who is pretty hideous. And they have this conversation about they're going to go after Morpheus and make him suffer. Mm-hmm. And then we get to Rose Walker, who, if you notice, they did a similar thing with the Rose Walker in the TV show and having the multicolored hair. But, of course, this Rose Walker is Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And she's flying to England, not with Lyda Hall, but with her mother. Ah, that's slightly different. Who, of course, in the TV show, the mother is dead. Now, some people have criticized the plotting of the comic book to say that the vortex, which passed from Unity Kincaid to Rose, should have actually been in the mother. 
So obviously they decided to solve this conversation for the TV show by simply having the mother be dead and not worry about as a presence, right? Efficient. Efficient. And of course the timing has changed for the TV show so that their unity is a great grandmother instead of grandmother. Uh, and as we mentioned before, change to be uh, of African descent, which is irrelevant to the plotting. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't matter. The character is similar, except the Rose of the TV show was less whiny, in my opinion. There's a lot of teenage emo-ness that goes on with the Rose in the comic. Which I'm okay with them not having. But not overwhelmingly, fortunately. Not enough to keep you from... You know, liking her as a protagonist. And that's something that people also often don't understand when talking about A Doll's House. And I think has disgruntled some people in watching the show when you kind of get to that second half of the show. But Dream is not the protagonist of A Doll's House. Rose Walker is. They don't understand that? They Apparently not. Because people have complained about his passivity in the show... But he's not the protagonist. He's not the one that needs to move the action forward. He did that in his first half. Right. And that's something you have to understand. Even though the series is called Sandman, he is not always the protagonist. Mm-hmm. His realm is involved. He's involved in some form. But other people, others are often the protagonists of individual stories. And although he does come back and act as more than a force of nature or mechanic, which is essentially the function he serves in this story. Because when he shows up, shit happens how he wants it to. Mm-hmm. Um, although tables do get turned on him a few times. I will also say, for those who've watched the TV show, they took uh, themes that were subtle in the comic and just shoved them in people's faces for the TV show. I guess assuming that people who watch TV instead of read aren't smart enough to figure these things out for themselves. Which might kind of be true, actually. Or maybe because they didn't have enough time. Well, I, I, I think they had... I think these themes were in the show, uh, but they decided to just say them flat out for people. I mean, let's just be honest. There are some not bright people who probably watch the TV show because they're not readers. Mm, fair. I mean, I'm just being honest here, right? Mm-hmm. So, Rose and her mom show up, they interact with the lawyer, they get driven there. You can see a lot of this in the show and read it for yourselves. Uh, Lucia, Lucien, here, instead of Lucien, is doing the survey, brings the results to Morpheus, all that kind of jazz. No surprises, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although I kind of prefer Morpheus's uh, new throne room in the comic over the one in the TV show. The one in the TV show was very sanitary. I mean, they kept the stained glass motif, but they took out the statues and the plants and all that stuff, which I liked. Fair. And we find out here that there are three, sorry, four arcana, major arcana missing. Like in the TV show, one is the Corinthian. And in the comics, this is the introduction of the Corinthian. This right here is the first we ever see of the Corinthian in the comics. Oh. Unlike in the TV show where he's made a protagonist, not protagonist, but an antagonist who shows up from the very beginning. Which they basically horror movie hint at at the end of a lot of episodes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not somebody that follows actors a lot and stuff like that. I don't know who the actor was who played 
the Corinthian, but he did a great creepy job. Yeah, he, he made me actively uncomfortable whenever he showed up. He was perfect. I mean, he was absolute letter perfect for the Corinthian. Mm -hmm. I was really impressed. And Stephen Fry as Gilbert slash Fiddler's Green, perfect. He was perfect. He was amazing. I, I the casting on the show was just astounding. Mm -hmm. I just loved it. They all felt like they fit their roles perfectly. Now we come to the two missing nightmares here that were combined for a new one in the TV show. In the TV show, it was called Galt. Here, it's Brute and Glob. Two separate ones who work together. Now, do you remember back early on in Sandman when I told you that this was not written with the expectation of creating a new genre? Mm -hmm. That this was not created with the idea that it would bring in whole new kinds of readers? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe somewhere Jeanette Kahn had some, you know, aspirations in that regard. But Neil Gaiman was a comic book geek writing comics for other comic book geeks. Mm -hmm. This is just the, the complete and utter truth. And so to talk about Brood and Glob and talk about some of the themes here, we have to get into some real history of comics. Here we go. What do you mean, here we go? Are you disparaging this? No. I'm offended. This is a hate crime against comic book nerds right now. Anyway. <laughs> Brood and Glob. Mm -hmm. Um, so, we, <laughs> it's, there is so much obscura here. It's like, where do I start without this taking two hours, right? Enjoy. So this was published in 1989, or mm -hmm. this issue might have been by 1990, depending on where they fell in the publication scheme, I'm not sure. So, in 1984... DC Comics had an event called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm-hmm. So this is only about five years later. So histories of characters had to be retconned. And we talked about universes last week, right? Mm-hmm. Well, back before Crisis, they had an Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 3, other things. Earth 2 was where they decided Golden Age heroes came from. Remember I talked about that flash of two worlds where the Golden Age and Silver Age class uh, flash met each other? Yeah. Basically, the Golden Age flash, Jay Garrick, turned out lived on a world called Earth 2, which is where Superman came out in the 1940s, as did Batman. And they had all these Golden Age characters like the Spectre and the Golden Age Flash and all these, the Golden Age Green Lantern and all these. And there was a Justice Society of America. Mm-hmm. While Earth-1, which was the current time period being published, was presumably a Batman and Superman that had come out just in the last, you know, handful of years and all that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Hall Jordan, Green Lantern, who's a space cop instead of wielding a mystic ring. By the way, we will be also recording today and dropping in a few more days an episode about rings. And we'll be talking about rings in regards to Sandman 2. All this stuff intertwines. And... So you, you, you had this Earth 2, right? Mm -hmm. However, somebody along the way said, hold on. Hold your britches, folks. Mm -hmm. Now, so there was a Justice Society of America in World War II era. Mm -hmm. 
what's happening by the 1980s, current day. And they started publishing a series called Infinity Incorporated, or Infinity Inc., Mm -hmm. which featured the children of a bunch of Justice Society members as adults, as heroes themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, these... In, I actually was a fan of this title. And it had a bunch of interesting characters. But two of them that are going to become very important are Hector Hall, the son of the Golden Age Hawkman, okay. uh, who became a figure called the Silver Scarab using technology. To uh, be a superhero. And Hippolyta. Uh, uh, trying to remember the last name. Anyway, the daughter of Wonder Woman and uh, Trevor, what's his name? Can't remember his last name for the life of me. And they were romantically involved with each other. Okay. Now, after Crisis... They had to retcon their origins to give them new origins because there was no Golden Age Wonder Woman anymore and no Golden Age Hawkman anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. So I forget what they did with Hector Hall, but uh, for Hippolyta, who had used the codename Fury, they kept her having a connection to Greek mythology, but now made her have that connection directly instead of through Wonder Woman. Okay. Now, I'm only bringing this up because it will be relevant as we go through future storylines of Sandman. Okay. Because she has a direct mythological connection to the Furies, also known as the Kindly Ones. The Furies are the ones that have the power to, to kill the Endless. Okay. So this is very important. They are an actual real danger to the Endless. Okay. And one of the rules of the Endless is that when the Endless spill each other's blood, or the blood of family, then the Furies destroy them. Okay. So this works into Desire's machinations. Mm -hmm. they, they do not talk about this explicitly in... The comic book series, but in the TV show, they bring it up as super obvious. You know, Yundi Kincaid was raped by a man with golden eyes, and that made her children endless. Well, related to the endless. Certainly special. And so if Morpheus had killed Rose, mm -hmm. he would have been spilling family blood, and the Furies would have destroyed him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Desire is not playing a harmless game here. Yeah. Desire is literally looking to destroy her brother, murder him. Okay, not good. W was that clear and apparent from the show? I, yeah. But it's very serious. Mm -hmm. But hold on, we're not done yet. Of course we're not. We now have to leave the children of Golden Age superheroes... To talk about a comic that was published in the 1970s for only six issues. Okay. A title called The Sandman. Remember I told you this was a book by comic book nerd, Neil Gaiman, for comic book nerds. Mm -hmm. Now, something happened in the 70s. Of course. A uh, guy you may have heard of named Jacob Kirby. 
was about to say it's Kirby, isn't it? Jack Kirby. Got pissed off at Stan Lee and Marvel and went to work for DC. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they wanted him to do was they got him to work with his old buddy Joe Simon. Mm-hmm. Who you may remember as inventing Captain America with Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want you to make a new superhero for us. So they invented a superhero called the Sandman. And they introduced the idea of the Sandman enslaving these two nightmares named Brood and Glob. And made this very lighthearted story about this kid named Jeb Walker. Okay. Who, in his dreams, hung out with the Sandman as like his sidekick. Okay. So, yes, people may not, uh, some people do not realize this, but... Neil Gaiman did not create Jed Walker. Joe Simon and Jack Kirby did. Because Kirby has his hand in everything. I know. He created Brood and Glob. He created the actual Silver Age Sandman. The first one. Or, Or only one, actually. Because this would have been the Bronze Age of comics by now. Uh, so, but Neil Gaiman took this and then created the Walker family, which is descended from Unity Kincaid and did all this. And if you want to know what that Sandman, whose name was Garrett, looked like, uh, the costume that Jed wears when he's dreaming in the TV show was the Sandman's costume. Oh, so that's what that was a reference to. Yes. Now, let's go back to Infinity Inc., because that ties in now. So towards the end of Infinity, Inc., which wrapped up in less than a year from when this is published in Sandman. So Neil Gaiman isn't just reading comics from his childhood. He's using current comics that he's still reading in this. Okay. Uh, Basically, this whole storyline happened where Hector Hall uh, takes over for Garrett and becomes the new Sandman. And moves into the Dream Citadel with his pregnant wife, Lyta. Hippolyta. Interesting. And they live in the Dream Citadel where he's the Sandman fighting crime. Slightly different. Slightly different! (laughs) And he can't leave. He's kind of trapped there and he's tied to the realm of dreams. Okay. Uh, And I say all that is set up, we're going to come back to it. Now, in the comic except for the 80s style being very different, things proceed much the same. They go to visit Yundi Kincaid at the home in England. Rose walks into a closet and meets the Three Fates, a.k.a. the Furies, a.k.a. the Kindly Ones, depending on the guys that they're there for. Because all important events in your life happen in a closet. Yeah, but in this case, it's her going into the closet, not coming out of it. Exactly. (laughs) They're either in or out. Now, here's a little tidbit they did not include in the show, which I kind of had wished they had. Uh, they're looking at the doll's house, which is huge. Look at it. It's taller than than Unity standing up. Yeah. yeah they made it smaller for the TV show. Yeah, they made it like an actual dollhouse. Now, size. look down in the window there. It's Morpheus. He's watching them from the doll's house. Oh, so he didn't dump it on Matthew in the comics. Well, no, Matthew is sent also. Oh, okay. But remember, unlike in the comics where they make this deal about Morpheus is weaker in the waking world, they don't have any of that crap in the comics. He's endless. Waking world is irrelevant. Okay, got it. 
So if he wants to hang out and watch an old woman, he can do it. Uh, it's not creepy at all. Dad, yes, it is. It is. Are, are you creepy. saying it's creepy when angels watch you? Yes. Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I'm tr the reason I'm stumbling and I'm, and I'm having trouble parsing my next words here is I want people to understand what they're doing with the dollhouse metaphor here. Everybody's living in some sort of doll's house. Mm -hmm. Yundi Kincaid literally was the definition of powerless. She slept for the better part of a century mm -hmm. because of events in the world around her that she had no control over. And is now an old woman looking at this children's dollhouse that was brand new to her when she went to sleep. Mm -hmm. And Rose is powerless. She's missing her brother. And she doesn't have the power to do anything about this. Mm -hmm. You know, the world has gone on and worked, uh, embodied in the TV show, in part by this foster woman. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and they're just stumbling around trying to figure out what to do. Now, like in the show, Rose had a dream about an annulet, which is passed from the grandmother to Rose. Mm -hmm. The annulet is a symbol for the vortex. Oh, because she passes it on to her. Right. And the vort what is a vortex? A vortex is a circle. Mm -hmm. It's a swirling circle that pulls things down into it. It is a ring. A ring of funneling water or air or whatever. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the reference of the amulet. A, a ring is something of power because it has neither a beginning nor end. It is a complete universe, a single dimension. Uh, which is an interesting symbology. Now, as we continue going through the story, she ends up at a new house. And although it doesn't look exactly the same, you cannot tell me that this house in Florida doesn't have some resemblance to that doll's house. Oh, it does. It's not exact. But she is now going to Florida to try to find her young brother, Jed, who's missing, and she's moving into another doll's house. And there's a guy in the window. And it's literally a doll's house because that is Hall Carter, mm -hmm. who, by the way, the Golden Age Hawkman was Carter Hall. <laughs> he was not subtle. No, no. He, he was a comic book geek writing for comic book geeks. This is what amuses me. People talk about Sandman as, you know, oh, well, it was intended to be this high literature and it has no connection to superhero comics. It is superhero comics. It is also high literature. Um, people forget that A Midsummer Night's Dream, one of the most celebrated pieces of playwright literature in English history, has donkey fairies making fart and dick jokes. Mm -hmm. High literature and entertainment are not mutually exclusive. Now, they can be exclusive, because Lord knows I've read some non-entertaining literature that was very artistic. Um, and I've read entertainment stuff with no literary value of any kind whatsoever. But they're still not mutually exclusive. And, and this is one of the things I want people to know. You can both enjoy things and think about them. And those are different kinds of pleasure. And you can have both kinds of pleasure. Because literature should be a pleasure. Reading should be a pleasure. So anyway, 
another thing that a lot of people miss is that there's another joke here because what is Hall's other persona? Because he's a drag queen. What is her name? I don't remember. Dolly. Uh, and it's his house. Uh, a doll's, doll's house. house. It's another little joke on Gaiman's part. Mm. <laughs> now we meet the... We meet Ken and Barbie, who are about as plain Jane Americana as you can get, as well as the sisters slash lovers slash whatever the hell they are. In the TV show, they establish that a little bit more, that they're at least friends of some kind. And don't seem to be related. Right. Uh, Although, maybe they're cousins or something. It's not clear. They don't say absolutely. At least don't seem to be sisters, because they imply they have different parents. Right. Um, And here... I mean, I think they're creepier in the comics than they are in the TV show. Look at that. And you never really get to see their faces. Oh, yeah. That's creepier. It is creepier. And they imply not one big, like, stuffed spider on them as a decoration, but they all those little shapes that look like they could be spiders. Yeah. And I don't like spiders. I'll go and tell you. I I do not like spiders. So here we get a dream sequence of Jed is dreaming and... There is Hippolyta in her fury outfit, though pregnant, along with her husband, the Sandman. And it's all very Little Nemo, for those who've ever seen Little Nemo. And these dream sequences are made to be lighthearted and fun. But Brood and Glob are trying to do the same thing Galt was, except where in the TV show, Galt was doing it because she wanted to make somebody's life happy. And be different from what she had been as a nightmare. Brood and Glob are literally trying to do what Morpheus accused Galt of in the show. Which is create their own dreaming. For no reason other than their personal power. Mm. And this is how Jed lives in the comics. He sleeps on a cold wet concrete floor. And has to pee against the wall where he sleeps. I mean, they actually made it less horrifying in the TV show, in a way. Uh, although they made it pretty bad in some other ways. And as they go, the plot pretty much goes like it did in the TV show, although we see a little bit less of the housemates. Uh, Gilbert shows up. He beats up the bad guys even more than he did in the show. And we see more here. I mean, look at the... Nice little cuteness of Jed's dream realm. This is the only thing keeping him sane, is his dreams are making him happy. Mm -hmm. And indeed, they are happy, unlike in the TV show. In the TV show, you know, he gets swarmed by the rats and wakes up screaming. Mm -hmm. Here, they're cute little bunny-like creatures that don't attack him, but he wakes up to rats biting him. But the dreams are his respite, his way of escape. Mm -hmm. And Hippolyta is dreaming. Also, there's some differences with the collectors and all that, but I I don't think that's particularly important. And here we go. There's Brute, Glob, and Hector Hall as the Sandman. And this plays out quite differently. So Hector's gone insane because he's dead. He's a ghost in there. In the TV show, they don't explain that, how Hector's a ghost in Lyda's dreams, with some vague implication that maybe Rose, as the Vortex, 
has pulled his ghost in somehow. Here, he's a ghost because Brood and Glob trapped him here to take Garrett's place and be their tool. And Lyda has been pregnant for many years now. The dream world holding her in this weird sort of stasis. And neither she nor Hector are particularly sane anymore. Mm. Now, Morpheus has found them, and he's going for them. And he's not happy. He goes into the dream realm. We see a nice little sequence here that I want to point out with Lyda literally in the dream realm going through these different memories of being in college, of being Fury, of being a superheroine. And she's just left in her dress pregnant and crying. I mean, none of this is healthy or good. And then finally, as Hector Hall as, you know, this ridiculous uh, uh, Golden Age-inspired costume Sandman goes off to fight Morpheus, who he's been told is, you know, this bad guy coming by Brute and Glob. Uh, Brute says, well, there he goes. Bye-bye, bozo. Now what? Glob. Festering scabs, pus and pox and puke on it all. We came so damn close. Just a few more years, it would have worked. No, it would never have worked, but it was fun to try. So, do we sit here and watch our old boss pull the bozo's head off? Or shall we find some place to lose ourselves and start it all over again? I mean, they, they know how this is going to end. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rose and Gilbert, unlike in the TV show, have not been called to meet the Corinthian. Their car is just broken down where the serial killer convention is. Oh, so they got lucky here. No, this is something they changed for the TV show because they assume people who watch TV shows aren't bright. Um, remember, she's a vortex. She draws things to her. Oh, yeah. Events in the world are going to happen to bring them. To her. They state this over and over and over in the TV show, and yet rewrote the plot to provide logical connections for everything happening. For people like me. <laughs> for people who don't think about the thematic development. That this seems irrational that all these things happen by coincidence, but they're not coincidence. They're happening mm -hmm. in the background to draw them all together mm -hmm. to the vortex. And the Corinthian doesn't come because... You know, people copycat him. He comes because he thinks it'll be fun. F fair. <laughs> fair enough. Meanwhile, Hector Hall is trying to fight Morpheus. And he goes, come on, you dumb nightmare monster. Uh, it's defeating the forces of darkness time. I see my servants have a servant of their own. Little ghost, get out of my way. <laughs> Meanwhile, the dream realm inside Jed's head is literally dissolving. <sighs> with a very pregnant Lyta, who if she had been in the real world would have given birth years ago. Brute and Glob, meanwhile, are trying to figure out what to do. Brute says, hell? No. Heaven? Don't make me laugh. Okay, I got it. Get out of the dreaming while he's busy with the bozo. Cut open Barnaby and Claris, scoop out their insides and hide inside their skins. He'd never think of looking for us there. He would. Yeah, he would. 
Meanwhile, Hector, I just love the dialogue in this scene. Yeah. Hector Hall, hold, foul nightmare creature, or I will disperse your fabric with my ultrasonic whistle. And then he blows a whistle. Dream, you try my patience, little ghost. Where are your masters? That didn't phase you, huh? Well, let's see how you react to a cartridge of dream sand. I can feel them hiding in that place. Get out of my way. Monster, you shall never get past me! And who are you? I am the Sandman, guardian of the dreams of men, protector against wicked nightmares, lord of the dream dome, and friend of children everywhere. You are what? <laughs> you? You are the Sandman? Is that what they have told you, little ghost? <laughs> Oh, humanity, I love you. You never cease to amaze me. This has been amusing, little ghost, and that was not something I expected. But every playtime must come to an end. This dream is over. And it is. And the next thing you know, you know that uh, uh, downstairs that Jed was locked in? Uh-huh. The door explodes. Because Morpheus ain't having this shit anymore. Fair. And just pulls everything that's real out of the dreaming back into the physical world. Damn. Brute glob, hello. I presume that this peculiar charade had some kind of purpose. Brute. Oh shit, 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 oh shit. Well, I am waiting for an explanation. Uh, well, you were how the picture, Lord, so we thought, hell, you'd obviously be away a while, perhaps for a real long while, so we could, you know, maybe make our own dream king, or, or you know, we'd be running things, so we hid in the kids' dreams and walled it off from the rest of the dreaming, then we began to make a Sandman, but, you know, first this guy named Garrett, uh, he cracked up, killed himself, couldn't take the strain... So we thought, okay, next time we'll get someone, someone who's dead to start with. So we pulled this ghost in and hooked the bozo up and he brought his wife along. But, you know, you kind of pulled your get-out-of-jail card earlier than we expected. And we're all here now and what's going to happen? I will clean up this mess you have created. And as for you two, I doubt that either of you will enjoy the next few thousand years very much. <laughs> And he sends them to the darkness, just as he initially did Galt. And then he dissolves Hector Hall, sending him to the Sunless Lands, because he's dead and shouldn't have been there. And of course, Lyda Hall is mad, and we have all the same discussion that they had in the TV show about how the child is his, and he does not want to see it hurt. Morpheus, meaning Lyda's child. Uh, Lyda had assumed that this child was Hector's, but of course the truth is... Hector was just kind of this being given substance by the dreaming that was being manipulated by Brood and Glob. And the dreaming is Morpheus. So this is actually Morpheus's child, something not everybody has seemed to understand. You know, it, it, it's kind of like imagine somebody's ghost possesses someone else's body and a child is had. Who's the father, the ghost or the person whose body was used? body. And that's pretty much the essence of it here. This child's father is Morpheus. 
Now, Hippolyta, who now, let's remember, post-crisis, is descended from the Furies who can kill the Endless, Mm -hmm. is angry at Morpheus and thinks that he's a threat to her child. That's not good. That will not become relevant in this storyline, but will in future storylines. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, nobody cares what happens to Jed. And the fact that he runs the hell out of the house and disappears into the night is completely ignored by everybody. That's not good. Until he gets to the side of the road and finds somebody to pick him up. Ah. The Corinthian, who's headed to the serial slash collector's convention that Rose and Gilbert are at because it's where their car broke down. Dun, dun, dun. 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 And then we have the story, Men of Good Fortune, which is the story that introduces Hobgabling, which they moved earlier to kind of in between the major arcs of Preludes and Nocturnes and then A Doll's House. And it goes pretty much exactly, except for the ending, which is tweaked a little bit from the show. But again, it emphasizes again this idea that he has changed. He's willing to call Hob a friend, where he would not have been willing before. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So they get to the serial convention slash collector's convention, and the amount of sheer silly cheese here is delightful. I mean... The, the ridiculousness and the combination of cozy with creepy of all these serial killers together is is oddly fun. Mm-hmm. I found it really fun in it, the TV show. It is. But it still manages to be creepy. And as you can tell, they stuck very close to the character concepts here. Oh, with yeah. Funland and Nimrod. Nimrod's a little taller in the show. But they all look very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And... There's a number of little scenes that are missed. And I do have to say, the Corinthian doesn't have nearly the fashion sense in the comics that he did in the TV show. Oh, oh. I mean, yeah, a wife beater and jeans? Jesus. Not nearly as impressive as the show's suits. No. They really dress him like a straight man here. <laughs> wow, that's kind of... That's offensive. That's, that's a straight hate crime. Says the guy in a wife beater and yeah, shorts. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> so, this, this pretty much proceeds as you'd expect. You get lots of the same jokes that were in the TV show. And so I'm not going to repeat them. But I do love some of these scenes. Especially this the religion panel. Where, you know, the one guy's like, I, I do not want to be associated with this madman. I kill for God. Y- yeah, you're the same one. <laughs> Definitely. I there is some dialogue I really enjoyed from the TV show that they didn't I mean from the comic that they didn't use here though. Oh. When they find the fraud in their mitts and they don't take him down to a basement to cut him up where a kid could see him. They take him out to the woods oh. and they string him up. And here Ooh. they made the good doctor a man. In the comic, while it was a woman in the TV show. And what what Corinthian says is, We'll teach you. The good doctor likes to skin people alive. Nimrod is a hunter, and he can bone and joint and gut any animal in minutes. 
For mis myself, I have a penchant for the eyes. And that's pretty much what they said in the TV show. Mm -hmm. But this is what I really love. The panel where they're all grinning like maniacs. Mm -hmm. Their smiles light up the darkness covering their faces. And the Corinthian says, do you know what we're going to do now? We're going to take turns. Ooh. That, that's fucked up. And instead of just seeing a violent moment of a guy getting stabbed, which is what we got in the TV show, here they cut away. Which is so much worse. Right. I mean, what they're going to do is so creepy that there's no point in drawing it. Our mm -hmm. imaginations are going to do a better job. Mm -hmm. And I think it's what they should have done in the TV show, yeah, too. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed when they did the stabbing. I was, I was like, mentally preparing for the cutaway. Right. And we get more inside the heads of some of the serial killers here. By the way, they refer to themselves as collectors. Are you familiar with the book, The Collector? I've heard of it. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of a seminal that uh, uh, a number of serial killers ha who collect trophies from their victims mm -hmm. have actually said influenced them oh. and said that, you know, spoke to them about why they do this. And this isn't the class for that topic, but just letting people know the collector's terminology and all that uh, is not incidental here. You know, it's meaningful. And... Gilbert disappears because he recognizes the Corinthian and he leaves behind a note that says, if you're in trouble, say this. Mm -hmm. So events continue to go on and Funland comes to attack her because he thinks that she looks younger mm -hmm. and like a kid that he likes. She mm -hmm. grabs the paper and says, what's written there? Morpheus. And it was written by a dream and summons the king of dreams, lets him know. And Morpheus shows up in the crowd and just, unlike the TV show where the Corinthian has to escalate things further and is trying to manipulate Rose, here the Corinthian knows nothing about Rose. Mm -hmm. He's just there to hang out with the people he inspired. This is a good time to be had. And... Dream just walks up to him and, I mean, he's a nightmare. He's no threat of any kind to Morpheus. Mm -hmm. Morpheus just unmakes him on the spot. No drama. Well, this is very different than the TV show. Well, and here, the Corinthian was only invented for a couple of issues. Mm -hmm. To be here and gone again. What Neil Gaiman obviously did not expect was for people to love the Corinthian so much that he would become a sort of breakout character in his own right. Mm -hmm. Which is why he was given such a much more prominent role uh, in the TV show mm -hmm. as an antagonist. Here, the Corinthian goes to stab him like he does in the show and see what happens. The knife goes through Morpheus's hand and Morpheus just doesn't care. Damn. Like, a knife is going to do anything to Morpheus? I'm still unmaking you. And then he proceeds to curse the people in the crowd, sort of, uh, like he did in the TV show. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Gilbert has found Jed, who was in the Corinthian's car boot. Oh, that's... Corinthian was just going to kill him later and just have fun with him. He was much nicer to him in the show. Well, and the Corinthian in the show is trying to get something out of Jed and Rose. Mm -hmm. He has no motive for hurting him. Right. And, well, and in the show, if he hurts Jed, Rose is not going to cooperate with him. Mm -hmm. 
And he wants Rose's cooperation. He can't kill Rose. Rose is... In fact, if he killed Rose, that would remove the conflict of the plot. Mm-hmm. Because the Vortex is dead, things go back to normal, all's good. Uh, so in the show, he's hoping to use Rose to, to stop Morpheus from being able to unmake him, which obviously doesn't happen in either storyline. Um... And he's completely oblivious. He knows nothing about a vortex or anything in the show. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 sorry, in the comics. So all of this has just been pulled together by Rose being the vortex. And then they return to Florida. And, oh, check out the sisters here. Or not sisters, Ooh. but Chantel and Zelda. Ooh. So much more creepy than the yeah, show, right? And, Jesus. And look how Ken and Barbie always dress the same in the comic. That's creepy too, right? Yeah, that's much. They made everyone way less creepy. Right. They made everyone kind of lovable. Now, again, like in the TV show, as they dream, Rose goes through their dreams. Although we get a lot more in the dreams here. Mm-hmm. The only one we really got to see a lot of in the dreams was Barbie's dreams. Yeah. The land of the Hierophant and the Cuckoo and Martin Tenbones. All of this will become very important in a later storyline. Mm. Because Barbie basically becomes the protagonist of a future storyline. Oh, probably right. why they gave her more screen time. Although I don't know if Neil Gaiman had that sense of it at this point, but he might have. And we get a lot more detail about the dreams of the others. Mm. Much more detail. Uh, including a little bit of seeing, you know, Zelda or Chantel, I forget who, as a child more about the spiders it is really all just super 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 creepy i don't like it and she goes through these dreams and we learn more and more about them but what we're learning of course is that they're all living in a doll's house Mm -hmm. again let's return to the theme they're all trapped they're trapped by society i mean it's not just called a doll's house as a lark to make a fun pun on an ibsen play um Barbie and Ken are trapped in these expectations of social roles, of being the American boy and girl next door mm-hmm. and having the perfect relationship. While Ken actually wants the sports cars and whores and really wants to be, you know, this super macho guy who's kind of an asshole and scumbag, mm-hmm. um, which he doesn't act like during the day. But that's really his dream. Mm -hmm. But he can't be it because he has to be Ken. Mm -hmm. And she, in her dreams, isn't Barbie. She's Princess Barbara. Mm -hmm. Of a kingdom that's more of a C.S. Lewis story of dark fantasy in some ways than some magical perfect dream realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Zelda and Chantel are kind of living a dream in a way because they're so outrageous. But they're defined by their past and these social constructs also. Mm-hmm. And if you think a gay drag queen isn't being confined by society, <laughs> I mean, I mean that—that's the most perfect, easy example of somebody being mm-hmm. forced to live in a doll's house. You can come up with mm-hmm. probably right, right. Uh, and of course, Rose. Rose is a you know unity we talked about. If you want to talk about being powerless, sleeping for 90 years, Rose, Rose has inherited this vortex, this amulet from her grandmother. She has no control over any of this. Mm-hmm. 
She's completely powerless. They're all dolls living in this doll's house. Uh, it, and it's a wonderful set of metaphors, I think. Mm-hmm. And we go much more in depth here into all of this than we get to see in the show. So people interested in these themes and in the characters, I do recommend they go and read the storyline. Mm-hmm. And, But we do have the same issues here that we did in the show with Dream doesn't really want to kill Rose. He has to. Mm-hmm. And he makes a vague reference to something that you get more into if you ever read the Overture series. Uh, after Neil Gaiman finished Sandman, he did not do any more Sandman series. He did some individual stories, but didn't do any series for many years, and then wrote a prequel series. And the prequel series is very much about the time that he did not deal with a vortex when he should have. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't want to kill somebody. And it destroyed a whole world, mm-hmm. living and waking. Mm-hmm. And led up to the events at the beginning of Preludes and Nocturnes. Mm-hmm. So he knows how bad it's going to be if he doesn't act on all this. So we get to the issue Lost Hearts, where all of this is coming to pass. A lot of the dialogue was taken directly for the show, so some of that won't surprise anyone. But one thing that is definitely different is that there is no Lucien explaining things. Mm. When Unity goes to sleep, she does not go to the library. Nothing is explained uh, between Unity and Lucien. No. Unity just pops directly into the Dreaming in Fiddler's Green, confronts Morpheus, and says that she's going to die. And when Morpheus says he doesn't understand what's going on, she doesn't have the mechanic of a book that explained what should have happened. She just knows somehow. And it, but uses that line that you laughed at, where she says, you're not very bright, are you? <laughs> she still uses that. Good. That, that was great. And notice what happens when the heart is given over. It's red instead of blue, but it's just like the glass heart from the, the desert. desert. And the black heart, that's the sigil of desire. Mm-hmm. So nowhere in here, nowhere in the comics, is a man with golden eyes ever mentioned. Again, we got to make it more obvious to people watching the TV show. Um, and although I will say, in defense, also another factor is comic book readers are readers. And readers tend to go back and reread for context. It's, it's a lot harder to go back and rewatch an hour-long episode. Yeah. I, I, although, I mean, obviously, people who are seriously hardcore into analyzing film and TV will. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just more meat here, in my opinion, in the series. So Rose doesn't have to die. And Unity does. The curse has gotten rid of. Uh, I it, It's a little different here. In the TV show, they use the picture of the girl that died in the diner to point out Rose's connection. Here, uh, we show a little bit about a news article. It says, Six Slain and Diner of Death Riddle. And Rose actually says, my friend died there. Well, they were actually more obvious here this time. Right. Um, but they didn't have a picture of her here to go by. And when you're doing art like this, it can be less obvious than in an 
actual photo on a TV show. Where, every, where that, actors have unique faces and you don't have to go right, by lines. Right. Especially if that was drawn partially by someone else at the time. And a small picture and a tiny part of a single panel on a page is not going to be super distinct. Yeah. So it's kind of a happily ever after for the Kincaids. The mother here is actually alive. Rose's mother is still alive. Mm -hmm. And so Jed and Rose are reunited with the mother um, who get the inheritance from Unity. And it is at least for now a happily ever after for them. And we get a very similar thing to how things ended. um, Except now... When, Ro- when when Dream goes down to confront Desire, notice the sigil in his gallery is a blue heart, like the one from the desert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, a little something you may not notice right away. But like in the show, he says he's coming through, doesn't ask permission, which is a big deal among the Endless. Mm-hmm. It's a major mic drop sort of moment, like, I'm letting you know what's happening here. And the fact that it's your realm doesn't matter to me. Which he can do because he's much more powerful than she is. And we have this same sort of discussion they had in the show. Now, why is this important? I'm going to just read to you some of the dialogue, which is a copy from the show. Uh, Because if you haven't seen the show, this is really, really important. So, Dream's basically explaining what happened. This is a moment where... Uh, If you have not, as a comic book reader, understood what has happened, we now get an opportunity for the character through exposition to explain it to you. This is where your hand-holding begins. Yeah. And he says, Was I to take the life of one of our blood with all that would entail? Or was it more devious than that? It doesn't matter, big brother. It didn't work. Because... Rose is literally Desire's granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Desire, if you are not of my kin, but I am. Yes, you are. Desire, listen to me carefully. Remember this. We of the Endless are the servants of the living. We are not their masters. We exist because they know deep in their hearts that we exist. When the last living thing has left the universe, then our task will be done. And we do not manipulate them. If anything, they manipulate us. Isn't that kind of what he learned from death? Yes, or or what she helped remind him of. Mm-hmm. We are their toys, their dolls, if you will. Remember, this is again about that power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Who really is in control? Who moves the others? Mm-hmm. So desire has been manipulating the Kincaid family as dolls. Mm-hmm. Because she sees humanity as beneath her. And Dream is saying, no, you are beneath them. Mm-hmm. And you and despair and even poor delirium should remember that. I, I don't understand. Look at the confusion on her face here. This is masterful, minimal art mm-hmm. on the part of the penciler here. She looks genuinely confused. Mm-hmm. I am afraid that you don't. Very well. I shall tell you something you will understand, sister brother. Mess with me or mine again, and I will forget that you are family, Desire. Do you believe yourself strong enough to stand against me? Against death? Against destiny? 
No. Remember that, sibling, the next time you feel inspired to interfere in my affairs. Just remember. Nice job. Now, it pretty much ends there. But what happens in the comic is super important. Mm-hmm. Uh, thematically, at this point. Because in the TV show at this point, they go on to kind of give a prelude to what will happen in Season of Miss if they do a Season 2 of Sandman. Which is when Lucifer, you know, deals with, you know, their, their threat against Dream. And I had the, wait, there's not another, there's not more episodes after this moment. Well, we'll see if they get funded, right? Mm-hmm. But Desire, and, and let's remember, folks, when you talk about things like TV projects, it's not about if people liked it, it's about if it made money for Netflix. So Netflix is going to look at things like, did they get new users from having Sandman? Did they remain users? Did, you know, retention get higher? That's what's going to matter. If you were a subscriber to Sandman to Netflix and you would have stayed subscribed anyway, it won't really matter because that's not making Netflix money. Although, if you want to see another season of Sandman, which I do, I do too. I recommend you tweet them, write them, tell them you want more, that this is something you would stay a Netflix subscriber for. Mm-hmm. That's just the truth. So anyway, Desire is left. Now remember, Desire Citadel is a copy of Desire's own body. Mm-hmm. As a giant, giant building. They say that each of the eardrums alone are 100 ballrooms in size. So Desire starts walking around after Dream leaves. And we get narration. These aren't Desire's thoughts, but here's the narration. And Desire walks the chambers of its heart. It walks the threshold, its citadel, and its protection. And Desire wonders, what did he mean that we are their toys? Human beings are the creatures of desire. They twist and bend as I require it. If I thought otherwise, I would crack like delirium, or I would abandon my realm like our lost brother. Poor dream. I really got under his skin this time. And desire smiles and forgets, for desire is a creature of the moment. And desire walks the endless pathways of its body, Certain that he or she or it in its soul and only con- is in soul and only control of its destiny, the only inhabitant of the twilight realm of desire, and feels nothing like a doll, nothing at all. But of course, that's the irony. I mean, literally, is in a doll living inside a doll as a house. Mm-hmm. I mean, what else do you call? A giant representation of their own personage. A doll. A dollhouse. Mm-hmm. And desire is the doll. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you want to get kind of technical about it, you could say that the theme is that we're all dolls. Even the things that are beyond gods. Everybody is dealing with power structures. So how do you become not a doll? Well, you try to have agency. You try to break away from others and have actual agency in your decisions. When agency is taken away from you is when you become an object, a doll. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you have to do to have agency is self-awareness. 
Desire will never be anything but a doll because she, he, does not have enough self-awareness to ever actually make true independent choices of agency. She, he is literally being controlled by the mortals who pull their strings even though they can't understand that. Dream is not a doll because he gets that. Mm-hmm. They don't go into it here, although we find out about Dolly slash, you know, Hall Carter later. But in the TV show, they emphasize this theme by him saying, screw it. I'm going to sell the house and move back to New York and give it another shot. He's taking control of his life again. He's literally leaving the doll's house, both literally and metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um, as we see other characters beginning to exert some control over their lives. So that is the point uh, thematically of the doll's house that everybody without awareness can lose agency and simply become controlled by the power structures in their existence, even the endless. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That finishes a doll's house. Kind of sad to see it done. It's good though. What, I mean, what did you think? You are not, d- despite being stuck here as my TA, I know you're not a big comics reader. You read some manga and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think? That was actually really good. It was. I don't normally like this era of comics art style, but I actually really enjoyed the simplicity of this art style. Now, I find it funny you call it simple because I know you like a lot of manga that's more, far more simple in, in style than this. Mm-hmm. I think what you like, don't like, is appropriateness of style to story sometimes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's it for A Doll's House. We will be back with the next Sandman arc next week. And we're also going to drop this week a s- episode about amulets and rings. Because it's always a ring. Because what? It's always a ring. It's always a ring. We'll, we'll catch up on that in just a minute. For now... Class is dismissed. Class is over, but before you leave your seats, we have one more teaching moment. New podcasts drop on Mondays and Thursdays. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and tons of other platforms, as well as YouTube. Our hosting is at comicscourse.captivate.fm, which also has our RSS feed. If you want to find our website, TikTok, any of that other stuff, constantly updated list is at Linktree. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Prof Hamby.